We are uh, in part two of our Grace and Life series. Now, of course, we, we had a name change this year. We changed over to from what was Mount Saints Baptist Church to what we are now known as Grace Life Church. And I wanted to kind of do this mini-series to kind of lay out for us what does it mean to have grace and life in our lives? And what does it mean to for us to be grace and life, the hands of the hand of Jesus in our community around us? Come to understand what it means to have the grace. We can really begin to grasp that. We can have such an impact on the world around us. We don't come here on Sunday mornings just out of habit, hopefully. Um, hopefully it becomes a habit. We don't come here just as a habit. We don't come here out of guilt. I try not to guilt anybody to come or not come. Hope you come here as a sense of devotion and desire to worship the Lord and really give Him, lift up His name and give Him the praise and glory that He alone deserves. That is why we worship. That is why we come together. We desire to see His name lifted up. We desire to grow in grace and to grow in knowledge of Him and grow so that we can become better ministers of the gospel in the community where He has called us. In 1980, in the 80s, you remember a huge disease kind of came on the scene. I remember the first instances of HIV and AIDS was all of a sudden became, it got into the news and everybody was wondering, what is it? What causes it? How did you get it? How can I keep from getting it myself? There was no cure. And everybody was scared out of their wits because HIV and AIDS was in the community. A few weeks ago, or a few months ago, actually, we started hearing about the coronavirus and start hearing about over in China it's coming in, few, in several years back there was SARS and there was a swine flu and an avian flu and all these other different viri and viruses and, and flus coming in and everybody's it freaks everybody out because for some of them there's no cure everybody gets afraid there's no antidote this past week, as I was driving around, I had two Filipino girls jump in the back of my car as I'm Ubering around, and they have the masks on, and they all get their gloves on, and they're talking in muffled voices behind their, behind their masks, and I was like, why are y'all wearing the, the masks like that? Are you guys sick? No, we're afraid of getting the coronavirus. I'm like, in Colorado, there's no instances of the, one, there's no instances of the coronavirus here in Colorado, and, and Right now, everybody who's gotten in the U.S. has come from back from China. I know, it, but it's in the Philippines, America. You're not in the Philippines, and unless you just came from the Philippines, there's not that. They go, oh yeah, we let our fears get the best of us, and we can react in a way when fear comes in. We make poor choices and poor decisions. But everybody's looking for cures to all these diseases. In the world. We all look for a cure for the disease of sin. Everyone tries to justify their lifestyle. We all know that there's something wrong in the world. It's not quite right. There's just something not right. It's beautiful. When you look outside, the snow is falling. It's beautiful out there. But as we look around the world, there's something not quite right. There's, people aren't as nice as they should be. We aren't as loving as we should be. We, should, we aren't as graceful to others as we should be. We aren't exhibiting the fruits of the Spirit as we should be, even within the body of Christ. And see, and God's grace, God gave us His grace to really step in and to cure what is what really is undeserved. 
Grace is undeserved merit from God. It's the undeserved love of God given to us. When we were still in our sins, the Bible says, Christ died for us. If you ever wonder what grace really means, there's an acrostic. G-R-A-C-E means God's riches at Christ's expense. In other words, we get to receive all the blessings of God. Not because we earn it, not because we deserve it, but because of what Christ did for us on the cross. We can have this relationship with God. We can have eternity secured. We don't have to worry about eternity. We don't have to worry about, as some other churches do, where you, if you don't live just right, if you are have, you're trying to earn their salvation, you have to have the, all the sacraments, and you have to have last rites. Those who grew up in the Catholic, uh, in the faith, Catholic faith, you know, you have to you have to do the last rites. You have to do this. You have to do this. You have to do this. And if you do all the things just right, then maybe you get to heaven. The Bible says it's not up to us. It is not up to us. If Getting to heaven or not getting to heaven was up to my ability, my actions, my behavior. And that means I'm more powerful than God. My getting to heaven is solely based on what Jesus did for me and my belief and trust in him. That's grace. That is the grace of God. We receive something that we don't deserve because of what Christ did for us. For us. And when you truly begin to grasp that, you understand that we this cure though everybody is seeking is the grace of God. It's the grace not only wipes away our sin, it also teaches us how to avoid sin. The real sickness in this world is sin. And by embracing the grace of God, all of a sudden we no longer have this need and this passion, desire to do our own things, my own selfish needs. I now want to please God. I want to do what's right. I want to show my love for God. I desire to live a life that is gracious, a life that is poured out. I want to serve. I want to avoid sin, not out of a sense of guilt, but out of a sense of love. See, grace itself is not a treatment plan. When you get sick, you go to a doctor and he develops his treatment plan for, for, your, for your disease or your sickness. If you do this and you do this and you do this, it's not a treatment plan that will get you through the, your sickness. It's a cure for the deeper struggles of our hearts. It's that cure that we desire for my desires. It's that true cure for what ails me. And it's an ongoing thing in our lives, right? We'd, when you get saved, when you, be, when you become a follower of Jesus, for most of us, it wasn't just an overnight transformation. Boom! It's, it was a slow growth process to become more like Christ. It's a process to learn to enjoy to read God's Word. It's a process to learn to enjoy coming to church and fellowshipping and worshiping together. It's a process that we go through in our lives where God draws us into His presence to make us more like Him. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 10, he says, by the grace of God, he's talking about his efforts going out there, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, he says, I worked harder than any of them. I worked harder than any of them around me. He says, God's grace toward me was not in vain. I worked harder than any of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. 
Paul, Paul's saying here, I acknowledge that there's effort that goes into trying to live a life that's honoring and pleasing to God. But I don't put that effort into saying, I deserve what God has to give me. I put the effort in saying, I'm trying to avoid sin. I'm putting the effort in doing and, and, and increasing my relationship with God in such that I can now live a life that is pleasing to God. He says, I, put my, I worked harder than any of them. Talking about those around, the Jews that were there. I worked harder than any of them. If you remember anything about Paul, he, was a, he called himself, he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He studied under the strictest sect of Phariseeism. I mean, he literally followed every little tiny law or, or suggestion of a law in the Old Testament. Or what people called just the traditions of men. Things that were not even written in the Old Testament, but were traditions. He followed everything. He says, I worked harder than any of them. And yet, not I, but it's the grace of God working within me that drew me to himself. It wasn't my effort. It wasn't my earning of God's grace. It was something that was given to me. Paul realized once he came to love Jesus, once he stopped persecuting the church, that God's love for him was there all along in spite of his trying to earn God's love. So if we talk about this grace-filled life that we're supposed to be living, what does that really look like? What does that look like in our lives, this grace-filled life? If you have your Bibles, open it to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to read through 17 verses here together. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. We're going to look in our lives, and then we're going to break it down here. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. Follow along with me in your Bibles. He says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And then he makes a list here sexual immorality, impurity, passion evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two, you once walked. He's admitting that you early church, you, you church in Colossae, this is the way you used to live. The grace of God came in, and now you no longer this way, that list that was there. In these two, you once, verse 7 again, in these you two once walked when you were living in them. But now, verse 8, you must put away all, put them all away. And then another list, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Put them away, he says. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian and Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. There is no difference between those of us in the room today. Christ is in all. He unites us and brings us together. Verse 12. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, 
bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual psalms with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. The grace-filled life. Paul lays it out there in so many practical terms for us. This is the way you used to live. Set that aside and put this on. Let the Holy Spirit come in and indwell you. Put on the grace of God and live this way. Live this way. So what does it look like then for those of us who are trying to live a grace-filled life? This life that we don't deserve, but that God chooses to let us live anyway. Number one, he says, it stems from a new heart. It stems from a new heart. Understand, when we would seek to put on this graceful life, to live a life full of grace and mercy with the power of God within us, it only comes through a new heart. Paul, as a Pharisee, didn't have that new heart. He worked and worked and worked and worked and worked, and he persecuted and persecuted and thought he was earning the favor of God through his actions. But his heart had never been changed. The only, the first thing we have to do to get God's favor is to change this. See, God is about changing the, from us from the inside out. It's not about changing the outside. That will come. But it only comes once this is new. Once our hearts are new. Once we have committed ourselves to Christ in such a way I mean, when John chapter 3, when Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, he's like, Jesus, we know that you're a teacher of God. What must we do? What must we do? It's always about what, what, what must we do. What does Jesus say? He just ignores his question. He says, you must be born again. He ignores it. He's the presumption of Nicodemus, if you want to turn away. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That verse that we all, so many of us learned when we were little. For many of us, it was the very first verse we ever learned in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he what? That he gave his only, his one and only son. That whoever lives a good life and goes to church three times a week and reads the Bible every six times through the year will have eternal life? No. Whoever believes on him will have eternal life. That person gets a new heart. By being justified to God, he regenerates our hearts and gives us new eyes to see the world as he sees it. We can look at the world and see the sin. We can look at the world with new eyes, new ears, and see it and view it how God sees it. And it should break our hearts at those around us who don't yet know Christ, who don't yet have not yet submitted themselves to God. 
when we get that new heart within us, our hearts yearn and long to share the truth with those around us. Our hearts long and our, we see the sin, we see our neighbors, we see the, the pain and suffering they're going through. And we want to see them also regenerated, to have a regenerated heart. See, righteous efforts can't be manufactured from a sinful heart. As long as somebody is in their sin, living a sinful life, and they have not yet have this new heart, they can do all kinds of works, but that's all they are. It's just works. It's just like a hamster running on a wheel. Over and over and over again. They're just spinning their wheels with no real effort. Graceful living requires a new heart that has been given over to God. We have to, every day, take up our cross. That means deny ourselves. Take up our cross and follow Him. Every single day. It's hard. They're, they're up and pray for you guys sometimes. There are tons of donuts all by myself. But yet, the love of Christ constrains me, the Bible says. The love of Christ keeps me in check. The love of Christ from a heart that has been given over, that has been submitted to God over and over and over again constrains me and keeps me from falling back into that old lifestyle. It allows me to avoid sin. It allows me to say no to those things. It helps me to say no to my sinful flesh and my, my desires and say yes to God in what He wants me to do and to be the kind of dad, to be the kind of husband, to be the kind of pastor I need to be when I don't want to get up and do that. The grace of God fills me, helps me get on down the road. So the graceful life, first, it stems from this new heart, this transformed heart. The graceful light also, number two, helps us take up the weapons of grace. Those weapons of grace, the blood of Christ and the word of God, those two things right there. See, and none of either of them are anything that we can do ourselves, right? The blood of Christ was given to us as you, we committed ourselves to God. The blood of Jesus covered our sins so that God no longer saw our sins. And that wasn't of our own doing. All we had to do was simply believe. We simply believe and trust. And, our, and we ask God to forgiveness. And our sins were forgiven. I love it. The Bible says they were tossed as far as from the east as from the west. Never to be seen by God again. Not held to our account again. All the sins I've ever committed in my past, God says, I don't see them. And all the sins I'm going to commit between now and when I die, God says, I don't see them. Because the blood of Christ has covered all of my sins. So if, he, if our sins are already for, covered then and God doesn't see them, why then do we, on a daily basis, why do we go to God and say, God, forgive me, God, forgive me, I've messed up again. Why do we do that? You ever thought about that? Why do we go to God and say, God, I've messed up again, please forgive me? Because we are acknowledging to God that we are still not where we need to be as a, as a child of God. We're saying, God, I am still needing your grace and your hand in my life to get where I need to be. He, we recognize that our sins will not be held against us to our account. 
But we recognize that we still sin every single day. I still say things I shouldn't say to my wife and my kids and others around me. I still think things I shouldn't be thinking. I still see things and do things in my daily walk that I shouldn't be doing. It lets me know that I need more grace from God to overcome those things. But yet the blood of Christ covers them so I will not be held accountable in eternity for my sins because of what Christ has already done for me on the cross. His blood covers my sins. Ephesians 2.13 says this, But now in Christ Jesus, you who are far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Those who are far from God, we're in the, in the, in the, in the, our job is to help bring those who are far from God into the presence of God so their sins can also be covered by the blood of Christ. So they can also experience the grace and love and mercy of Jesus. That is our job. That's all we're about. It's about going and making disciples. It's about reaching those who are far from God, bringing them near to God, bringing them into the presence of God so they can experience the love and joy and peace of Christ. Draw near to His love. The Word of God is that two-edged sword of God helping us cut a path to righteous living, right? I love that the Bible describes itself as a two-edged sword because not just, it doesn't just cut going in, but it also cuts going out this way and that way. And it cuts out all the sin. It cuts out David out of this fleshly being. It cuts out who I am out of this fleshly being and makes me more like him. The more I read God's word, the more I spend time in God's word, the more it makes me like Christ. This word of God, this literal word of God, this love, it's not just a book that we pull off of our the very words of God that he communicated to the authors and they wrote down for us so we might know the mind of Christ. So we might know God intimately. 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17 says this, all scripture, all of this, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, none of us like to be rebuked, but it's profitable for rebuking, for correcting and training in righteousness. So that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This word speaks to every area of our lives. Principles are there in place so we can learn how to apply them to our lives. That's why it's so vitally important that we spend time in his word every single day. I said a few weeks ago, and I heard it, it wasn't original with me, you know, our goal every year is to read the whole Bible through every year, but it's more important that, than reading the Bible through every year but that we spend the whole year in God's Word. Spend the whole year in the Bible. If you can't get through the whole thing in one year, fine. There's no judgment. I don't care. That's between you and God how much you read. But the fact that we should be, spe- we should be spending every single day in a little portion of His Word is more important then we let those little portions impact us and change us from the inside out. It's necessary for true transformation. Number three, through God's grace, we receive that heart transplant that I was talking about. It's not about just behavior modification. I can train my dog, but we are more than dogs. I've tried training our chickens in our backyard. They're not very trainable. So we leave them locked up. 
I haven't even tried training my dog, and she's stubborn. She's female. I mean, she's stubborn. I'm getting trouble. I've tried training her, and she, I, we keep telling her, out of the kitchen, out of the kitchen, out of the kitchen. And we turn around, we're cooking. Where is she right after that? Right next to us, in the kitchen. We're shooing her out, we're cooking, trying to push her out. And she goes out for a 30 second. She knows, do not go upstairs because Aaliyah keeps a lot of candy in her room and she likes to get into that candy or Tori keeps candy down in her room in the basement and we're like, we look around, where's Maymay? Where's the dog? She's either upstairs in Aaliyah's room or downstairs in Tori's room looking for candy. She knows where the good stuff is. She knows she's not supposed to go down there or up there, but she does it anyway. Why does she keep doing it? Because her heart has not been transformed. Why do we still keep giving in over and over and over again? Because our heart has not truly been transformed. We think it's all about behavior modification. We think as long as we look good, that it's okay. But God is about starting here. Once this has been changed, once your heart has been transformed, once this has changed, then the whole outside will follow suit as well. We look in the mirror and we, look, we seem okay, right? We look in the mirror and we say, I'm not as bad as my neighbor. I'm not as bad as my brother-in-law. I'm not as bad as whoever else I'm comparing myself to. But in God's kingdom, he says, you still need work. You let God, God's like, let me worry about this person over there. You let me worry about your brother-in-law. You let me worry about your, your kids. You let me worry about your parents. You worry about you. You may think you look good in the mirror, but I can guarantee you, you don't. God says, I still need to work on you. Number four, grace helps us to put to death sin. We must put sin to death in our lives. Not just put it in the back room and forget about it. We have to kill it, knock it out. Romans chapter 6, we read this last week, I'll read it again. He's talking about the grace of, in chapter 5, he's talking about the grace of God and how when there's sin, so much sin around, God gives us more grace. In fact, I'll start there. Chapter 5, verse 20 says, The law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace all that might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Then chapter 6, he says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Heaven forbid, the King James says. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized in Christ Jesus were baptized? How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into a death? How can we continue in sin? We must put sin to death. Seek to eliminate it from our lives. That is our job. That is, God gives us His grace, His grace in our lives, so that we can live a righteous life before Him. Righteous living and sinful living do not work together. It's like oil and water. They do not mix. The Bible says, should blessings and cursings come out of the same mouth? No, they shouldn't. They can't. 
Righteous living and sinful living cannot work together. We must commit ourselves to righteous living, even though we're going to sin from time to time, commit ourselves to righteous living and say, God, give me your grace, give me your mercy. Let me walk in such a way that I am living a life that is different from the world around me. I'm living a life that is different from my neighbors. I'm living, living a life that is glorifying you in everything. I want to put sin to death, to kill it, to wipe it out. To not just flirt with sin any longer in my life. And it's hard, isn't it? It is hard. Because sin is fun. I admit it. Sin is fun. If it wasn't, we wouldn't do it, right? But the grace of God comes in and lets us see the end result of that lifestyle. Let's us see what's going to happen as we look ahead. That's part of growing and maturing in our faith as we we want to sin, but if I give in to it, we see the end result. And we make the choice to not, to say no, and to walk the other way. Being an adult, in a human sense, is about making wise choices, right? Those of us with kids know our kids many times make unwise choices, make stupid choices. And many times we still do as well. But hopefully as we grow as adults and we grow up and we mature, we're learning to make wiser choices in our lives so we don't have to go back and apologize and and make up for those stupid choices again in the future. (laughs) We still make stupid choices. Unwise choices. Hopefully they're becoming fewer and fewer and farther between. But as we continue to flirt with sin in our lives, thinking... It's not going to really affect me. It's not going to really change my future. We allow that to have control instead of God's grace. And see, as we learn to embody the grace of God in our lives, we'll learn to come together as the community of believers, which is really where this is all going to. As we grow together with the grace of God, we'll come together as a community of believers under the banner of God's grace. We've heard the song, His Banner Over Me is Love. One of the old hymns. You ever wonder what the banners are talking about? We know they're flags. We saw, we watched a video a while back, uh, my family and I, a couple years probably, and um, they were discussing this the idea of banners. And what this means of being a banner and is that children of Israel were leaving Egypt and going to the promised land. They passed by some of these Egyptian temples. And above, around every temple, there would be these huge flagpoles with the banners out there showing which God was worshipped at that temple. So if you were looking for, uh, I, don't, I can't even think what the different gods of Egypt now. now. But you're looking for a certain particular god, you could look on the horizon and see these banners flapping in the wind and they knew that that was the god of whatever, the god of frogs or alligators or the god of the dead or Ra, the sun god. And you wanted to go and make offerings to that god. You'd go to wherever that banner was flying. As children of God, as a community of grace of God, We should be flying the banner of God's grace over our church, saying, here is the love of God. Here you can find truth and grace and mercy. Here we are the embodiment 
as the children of God, as the community of God, we, are, we should be the embodiment of God's love, the embodiment of God's grace, and the embodiment of his mercy going out. So as the world comes and they meet us, they're finding Christ. They're not finding Pastor David. They're not finding Mike and Mike and Young Sue. They're finding Jesus in us. They should be finding Christ. So what does that look like then to live as a community of, of God's grace? And we're almost done here. 1 Peter verses 4, 7-11 says this. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and sober-minded for prayer. Above all, maintain love for one another, since love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable toward one another without complaining. Just as each one has received a gift, use it to serve others. And as good stewards of the varied grace of God, if anyone speaks, let it be as one who speaks God's words. If anyone serves, let it be from the strength God provides, so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. To Him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. This is a picture of what it means to be of a community of grace, a community of believers. What, is it, what does that say to us? Four things, five things here. One, be sober-minded, focused on prayer. What does that mean for us? It means as a community of believers, we need to be sober-minded, be mindful, and let our, everything we do be bathed in prayer. But does prayer really work? Does prayer really work? What does prayer do when we, we, we get on our knees? Can't God just do what he wants anyway? Uh, yeah, he's God. But what does prayer do? It aligns us with God. It aligns our passions, our desires, with God's passions. When Regina and I were dating, we, I used to try to end, this is part of me trying to impress her, but also I wanted to uh, really do this in our relationship. Part of us dating is we would finish the night with, with reading through the Psalms together or, or praying together. And part of my reason for doing that was one, to impress her, because we weren't yet. When you pray together, you become aligned together in your passions. And so she and I drew together in prayer. We also were aligning ourselves with the passions of God and what He wanted us to do. So that all of a sudden, my desires and her desires united under the desires of God. When we pray to God, my passions, what I may want, seem to change into what God wants. So when we pray to God, we're really saying, God, let me come into alignment with you. Let me be focused on you so that I can do what you want me to do. We can be impassioned as a church, as a body of Christ, to go forward in a direction that where God wants us to be. Number two, he says, show constant love for one another in verse 8. Be, show constant love for one another. No matter what your economic background, what you look like, smell like, dress like, whatever else, we should be showing constant love for one another as we draw together as the body of Christ. When somebody in our church, somebody in our fellowship goes, has, is, is, is sad, we ought to all be sad. When somebody's rejoicing, we can all rejoice. When somebody goes in for surgery, as I know this week, uh, one, of, one of our members is going in for a surgery this week, and we'll be praying for her as she goes in. We ought to all be praying for that person as we're pouring into each other's lives. As it's not just about me, it's not just about you, it's about us as the body of Christ, showing constant love for one another. Number three, showing hospitality. Being hospitable one to another, not just within the body of Christ, but all who come to us. All who God brings to us. 
God is going to build his church, but he's got to start with us. Number four, learning to serve one another. It talks about our spiritual gifts. As, as It says, if anyone speaks, in verse 11, let it be as one who speaks God's word. If anyone serves, let it be from the strength God provides. Verse 10, he says, each one has received a gift. Use it to serve others. We've all received a gift. If you are a child of God, you have received a spiritual gift. Probably more than one. Maybe one has come to the surface. Maybe one is stronger than another right now. When I was in college, I used to say that, and they probably were at that time. But over the course of time, over the past 20 years, God is developing the other spiritual gifts, the other fruits of the fruit of the Spirit in my life, so that now when I take those spiritual gifts tests, like, yeah, this, another one may come out ahead. Another one, they, they fluctuate through my life as God uses me in different capacities to reach this generation. Serving one another, using those spiritual gifts that God has given to us, not just letting them go dormant. And if you've never taken one of the spiritual gifts tests, and you're just curious, where is it that God could be using me? Find me afterwards. I'll give you a link. We've got a great link, on uh, a great little spiritual gifts test we've given before, and I'll be glad to send you a link where you can just... Just take this quick test, like 100 questions, and you just fill it, you do it, and it kind of gives you an idea where God may be working in your heart right now. And you can then take that, that gift and say, if this is where God has gifted me, and where God is working in me, how can I use that gift within the body of Christ? So come see me afterwards. I'll give, be, sure, be glad to give you, send that to you. Number five, but let Christ be glorified in everything. I love Verse 11, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. A couple weeks ago when we were doing our, uh, our mini-series on prayer, we said Paul was saying, I pray this so that. I pray this so that. Here he's writing, serve so that. Peter writes, serve so that God may be glorified in you in everything that is done, whether through word or deed, Christ may be glorified. See, that's why we are here. We are put here on this earth so that we might glory, glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That is why we exist. That's why God made us. That is why God placed us here so we can glorify Him through every aspect of our lives. As His grace and mercy flow through us, we can glorify Him at the workplace. As His grace and mercy flow through us, we can glorify Him in our families. As His grace and mercy flow through us, we can glorify Him at the Broncos games. Not the Raiders games, the Broncos games. We can glorify Him in everything. No matter where we are, God receives the glory. See, our words and actions are practical expressions of of God's grace to others. The grace of God. The grace-filled life. One final question. Have you allowed the grace of God to fill you? Or are we still living under our own attempts to please God? Have you allowed the grace of God to come in to give you that new heart, the heart transplant, not just about behavior modification. It's not about looking and behaving the right way. It's about a change. 
that must take place. And this is true whether you're a believer or not, or, or, or not a believer. If you've ever committed your heart to Christ or not committed your heart to Christ. I, I, got, I became a Christian when I was seven years old. And it was six years before I ever let God come in and do a real transplant in my heart. He had saved me, but I never really gave my heart over to him and said, God, whatever you want me to do, wherever you want me to go, whoever you want me to talk to, I'm willing to do it. And it doesn't necessarily mean he's going to send you overseas as missionary like he did us. But it does mean he's going to take you out of your comfort zone. He's going to bring people into your path that he wants you to impact, to be the hands and feet of Jesus and helping shape their lives, get them on one little step down on their spiritual journey. And where we can participate in that divine journey of other people as we share with them and talk with them. Have you allowed the grace of God to fill you? Or are we still fighting it? 